Welcome to uh, Science Sundays. Uh, Science Sundays, as you know, is a free lecture series that's open to the public. It provides a wide range of current and emerging uh, topics in science that are related to our lives. And our speakers are experts in their own fields that are from either Ohio State or around the globe. Uh, we try very hard to make every topic accessible to all age groups with and without the science background. And uh, as you know that Science Sunday happens every month on Sunday, followed by a free informal reception after the lectures. And I'm the host of today's event. Uh, my name is Zhongli Nu. Uh, I'm the director of the Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Brain Imaging. It's on page 17 of your field guide. <laughs> That's our center. Uh, our center is a, a state-of-the-art to the study of uh, structural and functional magnetic resonance imaging of the human brain. Uh, I'm proud to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Ruchika Prakash. Uh, she's a colleague of mine and attending professor in the Department of Psychology and also the Associate Director for the Center of uh, Cognitive and Behavioral Brain Imaging uh, in the Arts and Science of Ohio State University. Uh, Ruchika received her doctor's training in clinical psychology in 2009 uh, from the University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, her laboratory has been the lead laboratory in studying the <coughs> mindfulness medi meditation as a cognitive and emotional rehabilitation tool for the elderly. Uh, in her short academic career, she has published over 60 peer-reviewed articles uh, often in, very, in top tier journals in psychology and neuroscience. Uh, Dr. Prakash is funded by the National Institute of Health and uh, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. And she received the Rising Star designation given by the American <coughs> Association for Psychological Science in 2013 and the, an early career award by the Division of Adult Development and Aging of American Psychological Association in 2016. So please uh, join me to welcome Dr. Prakash. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. How are we all doing? Doing great. Well, thank you so much for being here. I have to say, it takes a certain level of awesomeness to get out on a cold Sunday afternoon and go learn about science. So good for you guys. Uh, well, it really is a great honor and a privilege to be here and talk about my research program, talk a lot about the lab and uh, bring it to an audience that actually funds our research. So it's really a great professional honor to be here. Personally, I'm very grateful as well to talk about this uh, research and have this um, experience. Now, you see, my husband and I are both academics. And as part of our jobs, we tend to give a lot of these uh, uh, public uh, engagement talks. Now, one of the things, uh, now we have a one-year-old and a six-year-old, and we had a deal when the kids were not sleeping through the night and one of us had to give a talk, is that we would get five nights of uninterrupted sleep. Right Now, anyone who's been a parent knows how important that is and how critical that is. So I, uh, last year, I emailed all of my academic friends and said, please invite me to give talks, because that's the only way I can get five nights of sleep. The problem was that he did the same, because he's an academic as well. So it averaged out, but we felt really good when we had to go give out a talk, because we got uninterrupted sleep. But now that the kids are a little bit older, they sleep through the night, our deal now, especially if we're doing this on a weekend, we get the morning off of childcare. So this morning, my husband took the kids off and I had the most amazing slice of banana bread and vanilla latte from uh, Starbucks. So really, personally, I'm very grateful. In that moment, I wanted to thank John Lynn and all of you for inviting me to come and give this talk, so I appreciate it. I'm going to tell you today about my research program that I have been developing since I got here to Ohio State in 2009 on mindfulness and the aging brain. 
Now I have two goals for today's talk. One is of course to talk about this area of research, which I really see in three phases. So the phase one, which we've been working on for more than about a decade or so, really looks at what changes as we get older. So what changes happen in the structure of our brain as well as in the functioning of our brain and how does that translate to behavior? So how do our cognitive faculties, you know, all of the mental processes that are involved in learning, remembering, and using knowledge, how does that change as we get older? And we've done a lot of work within this phase one. I'm going to present to you our pilot study of the phase two, where we basically designed this mindfulness intervention to enhance cognitive functioning in our older adult participants. We took this pilot data that I'm going to tell you today and went to the National Institute of Health, who have now funded our large five-year study, which we're going to be starting up in January. And the goal of all of this research really is to take this research and develop this app, which I've been calling the Mindful Agers app, which will hopefully happen in a few years, is to take all of our evidence-based science and basically come up with this application with the goal of worldwide dissemination. So that's our goal for this uh, part of the talk. My second goal is to really uh, talk about what does it take to do a good trial, right? Now you open up Washington Post, you open up New York Times, there's lots of uh, information about you should be doing this for your health. You should be taking in vitamin D, you should be having a good diet, social support, exercise, mindfulness, meditation. And so to address the question, what should we trust? What does it take to make a good trial? And I'll uh, walk you guys through this uh, uh, concentric spheres uh, towards the end of my talk. So that's my goal for today, is to have this two-purposeful uh, uh, two uh, talk. So before I get into any data, I would like to start by saying that the simplest of our studies takes about a year or a year and a half to complete. It really does take a village to do this work. This is my laboratory here, which really comprises of extremely motivated, hardworking undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs, and full-time research staff that conduct a lot of this research. This, fund, this research is expensive, especially when you try to do brain imaging. Uh, we have one of our uh, supporters of the Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Brain Imaging, Susan and Dean Kipson, they're here with us. And I really, want, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank them and the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and the National Institute of Health. So promoting cognitive health. This has been a topic that has been the focus of my research since I started graduate school. I've looked at computerized cognitive training, so you all have heard about brain training games, right? So I've looked at how does that impact cognitive functioning and health in older adults. I've looked at the effects of exercise training, and then now much more recently, the effects of mindfulness meditation, and how does that impact brain structure and function? Now, with the exception of computerized cognitive training, exercise training and mindfulness meditation, I really see them as lifestyle interventions that require change in our everyday lives. And I think a lot of people get that for exercise training, right? If our goal is to become fit, we can't just go to the gym for about eight weeks or so, engage in about two hours of exercise a day, and then assume that we're going to be fit for the rest of our lives, right? Anyone thinking that here? Now, yeah, perfect. <laughs> so the same thing with mindfulness meditation as well. It's a lifestyle-based intervention. So you can engage in formal practices, you can go through formal practices, but it's about adopting these principles and these skills in our everyday lives. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Now, mindfulness is really quite the buzzword, right? Especially when you hear TSA agents at airports talking about being mindful, you first think to yourself, well, TSA and mindfulness doesn't really go together, but it's become quite the buzzword. You know, we have our Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio who wrote a book on Mindful Nation. He was here a couple of years ago, and we have organized an entire day around Mindful OSU. So he's written on that. We had, it was on the cover of Time magazine saying the mindful revolution. But now we're a Buckeye uh, land, right? So O-H-I-O, right? So we only believe things when football players endorse them, right? <laughs> so, 
So Pete Carroll's team apparently was practicing mindfulness, and it is around that time my then dean called me and said, tell me about your research. It looks interesting. So uh, yes, football is, all, is what we're about. On that note, we did great yesterday. So what I want to start by talking about is what is mindfulness? It's really a buzzword. People have been using it in all different ways. So what do I mean when I say mindfulness? So let me start by giving you a definition of mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn. He's the person who is responsible for bringing a lot of this from the Buddhist tradition and placing it in our Western world in a very secular context and approaching it from a scientific perspective. Here's the definition that he gives. It's an inherent human characteristic to bring one's complete attention to the experiences occurring in the present moment in a non-judgmental or accepting way. I'll give you another definition by Pema Chodron. Mindfulness is an open attentiveness to whatever arises. It is basically a development of trust in the present moment and the willingness to contact it directly, be it coldness or hotness, hardness or softness, gloom or happiness, darkness or brightness. Essentially, it boils down to paying attention on purpose with non-judgment. It really is this conscious commitment to awaken ourselves up to the experiences of the present moment. Whatever is happening in this moment, whether it's about attending this lecture, we're fully present. We're sustaining our attention on what is happening with us in this moment. And all of that really is done in a soil with an attitude of non-judgment and acceptance. I do a lot of work with patient populations, individuals who suffer from depression and anxiety, and, talk, and they are often talking about past, things that happened in the past, or future worries. And we all have them. The idea is, can we let go of that and be in this present moment for whatever it is? and not all times, and letting go of the judgment, the evaluation of that. It's a bare registering of facts as they're happening in this moment. You know, one example that I always like to give from my um, life, and this was a few years ago, is it, it, it was around this time, I think right around Thanksgiving or so, and we got our first snow of the season, right? And my daughter is just standing there and having the snowflakes drop on her face. She was about a year and a half or two years old, and she was completely taken aback by that. Just was so, that, that moment was everything for her. And, what, and this was, again, before my practice of mindfulness. And all that I could think about is like, God, it's going to get so cold tomorrow. And oh my God, it's going to be slushy. And do I have the winter coats out? What about my boots? And that moment is when I let go of that and just notice what was happening with her and how she was really enjoying that moment. From my clinic, I work a lot with people who suffer from chronic pain for one reason or another. And every time that pain comes up, we talk about experiencing the bare sensation of that pain. When that pain comes up, are we actually experiencing pain or is it the story around the pain? How did I get that injury? Why me? Why did that happen to me? And we w build this entire weave of a story and that's what we end up focusing on. The idea with mindfulness, with a lot of hard work, none of this comes to say that it's easy, with a lot of hard work is this idea of dropping the narrative and focusing on the present moment, whatever that present moment is. Now, a lot of people ask me, well, what constitutes mindfulness practice, right? Is it doing these convoluted yoga poses? Because I sure as hope, hope to God that this is not it, because I cannot do that, especially having a baby last year. Is it going on these calm walks? Is it smelling an orange and not roses? Uh, in fact, it's all of these. It's really about our commitment to be present, whether it's in this room, whether it's in a lecture hall, whether it's watching the football game. 
in all of these experiences, we can bring mindful attention to it. And so from a scientific perspective, I think it really boils down to two things. One is, can mindfulness help us improve our sustained attention capabilities? And then the second is, can it help us regulate our emotions so that we may respond to our emotions as opposed to reacting to our emotions? And this has become much and much more true in this era of connectivity, right? We get that text message or that email where you're like, oh, I'm going to respond, react to it right now and just take a step back and respond to it rather than react. So there are these two components of it, sustained attention and regulation of emotions. Today I'll speak to you a little bit about just sustained attention and regulation of emotions as talk for another day. So cognition and aging, right? So I think I mentioned this. Cognition really refers to mental processes that are involved in learning, in remembering, in using your knowledge, sitting here in this lecture hall and paying attention to what is going on in the screen, what I'm talking, registering that, comprehending that. And then tomorrow, if someone asks you, what did you do on a Sunday, you can talk to them about you learned about mindfulness and how it impacts the brain. Now I'm going to show a slide that might be a little disappointing for anyone over 25 in this room. Anyone who's under 25, please don't look at me. There is a well-documented cognitive decline in aging. So this graph basically here, you see all of these different domains of cognition that I was telling you about. How fast do we re react to things? Or how, um, how much do we remember? Or how well can we pay attention to things? As you can see, the majority of these abilities start declining in your mid-20s. And I, I was just finishing up my PhD when the study came out, and I was like, well, wasn't I just taught that everything matures by the time you're 21, so you only have about four good years before <laughs> things start like declining? I'm like, thanks. Now that cognition, right, this change in cognition that happens as a function of aging also is accompanied by changes in brain structure and function. So right here, the study that you see, this is kind of a side, it's a side 3D view of our brain and this region right here is what's called the prefrontal cortex. It's the seat of higher level cognition, right? So it's the area that gets activated when you're planning for things, when you're doing multitasking, you're doing a num going back and forth between different things. And the volume, how thick this area is, declines as we get older. And you see this nice graph of declining, right? Nice graph, that's a good way of putting it. So brain structure declines and changes as we get older. Another thing that I tend to study a lot more at our state-of-the-art technology at the Department of Psychology is what we call brain function. So what now we have technology where we can put people inside an MRI scanner and basically look at the blood flow that happens in the brain. When, uh, when a certain areas of the brain get recruited to do certain tasks, what you see are these blobs of activation in those areas. So this red uh, uh, network, which is called the frontoparietal network, basically frontal part and then top part right here, that's the network that gets engaged when you're focusing your attention on something. So right now, for those of you who are not engaging in mind wandering, this is what needs to be going on, right? So that's what's activating. The blue is what's called, it's a network of regions that are called the default mode network. This is the network that gets suppressed as a function of, uh, uh, as a function of focusing your attention. So the red network should be activated right now, the blue network should be deactivated or basically not, there, there should be less blood flow in that region. What's really cool about this is that you can take the time course of activity of these regions and basically you can see as red goes up, blue goes down, as blue goes up, red goes down. And now we have the technology and the analysis strength to be able to basically look at the connections of the different parts of the brain, especially both this frontoparietal network and default mode network, right? So the idea would be, so how does mindfulness meditation actually end up changing the strength of connections of these different networks? Now, since we just talked about mind wandering, let's do a show of hands. How many of you are entirely attending the lecture? A few of you there, okay. 
how many of you were, are thinking about what you're going to do after the lecture? I can raise my hand. Mine, there's no shame in mind wandering, right? I just thought about, oh, my student had to send me a conference abstract and hasn't done that yet, so I got to email them. How many of you were, are thinking about events that just happened earlier in the day or about the game yesterday? That's a couple of you, right? And that's what's called mind wandering. It's this psychological phenomena. It's a shift in attention away from the task at hand and towards internal thoughts. Now, mind wandering is something that we as humans engage in a lot of. I think all of us can sit here and attest to the fact that we've had a fair share of mind wandering, right? In fact, research suggests that about 50% of our lives are spent in mind wandering. Now, none of this is to say mind wandering is bad for us. That's what I was saying. No shame in mind wandering, right? I always say I get my best research ideas when I'm at a talk and thinking about my own talk, about my own line of research. But mind wandering, and so we, we can assess that. So for example, you know, you're attending a lecture like that. You can say, okay, aging results in changes of the structure and function of the brain. Now we're talking about mind wandering. This is what's called on-task thought. So you're with me, you're following the lecture, and you're uh, um, not engaging in mind wandering. So we're doing that. The second instant could be, you're like, you're still with me in the lecture, but you're like, I don't get this talk. What was the slide with all of the brain pictures? What was she talking about the networks going up and down? So that's called task-related interference. So you're on the task, but you're still off there. The third one, which again is, nothing, is not happening to any of you, because this is such an engaging lecture, <laughs> is man, all this health talk, and I have a steak and potato dinner planned. Uh, this is something that I always talk to graduate students about. I wonder if my advisor is here and can totally see I'm attending this talk. Right? And that's what's called task-unrelated thought. Now, in our studies, those are the kind of probes that we embed within our computerized cognitive tasks. So we basically have our participants sit, up, uh, sit next to a computer screen and do really these long, boring tasks where they have to respond to an X or an M on the screen for about 30 minutes, so it's boring. And then uh, we assess for whether they're engaging in task-related interference or task-unrelated thoughts. And this is how the probes show up. So they're doing this long, boring task for 30 minutes, and this quasi-randomly, they'll have a probe come up that asks them, what were you thinking immediately before the task? Press 1 if your mind was on the task. Press 2 if you were thinking about performance on the task. Press 3 if you were thinking about personal worries, daydreaming, fantasizing, or just lost in thought. And that is what we call as mind wandering. So here's our more, uh, uh, classic kind of a task, right? It's called what's called a go-no-go -no -go task. So basically, they have really fast presenting stimuli come up on the screen, either M or X, and their job is to tell us whether it's an M or an X. So they go really fast unless they hear a beep. And if they hear that beep, then they're supposed to not respond. They're supposed to withhold the response. And the beep goes like, let's see if I can get this to work. Oh, oh well. So they have a, a loud sound, beep, and then basically they're supposed to withhold their response. It's a classic go-no-go -go kind of a test. And what we do see, so on this graph you see when people are on task, that is when they report that they're focusing their attention on task, their accuracy is pretty high. This is both for old and young adults right here. But if they're evaluating their performance on the task, when they're like, oh, am I doing this right? Am I doing this accurately? That's when their performance really suffers, both during task-related interference as well as task-unrelated thought. So there are costs of mind wandering. As a clinical psychologist, another finding that's really important uh, uh, when I look at it is there was a study that came out of Harvard University where they basically looked at how was mind wandering related to happiness. And on average, what they did find was that individuals who were engaging in mind wandering were the ones who were, or who were engaging in a lot more mind wandering were the ones who were unhappy. So there's both a cognitive uh, cost to it as well as affective cost to it. So what we were interested in doing was designing this study. We called it the Health Education and Lifestyle Training Study, the Health Study. And the idea was 
can we look at mindfulness meditation and see if it helps, helps reduce the rates of mind wandering and also improve attentional control in our older adult participants? So we got a number of older adults. We had, I think, 75 older adults in this study. And then what we did was we did randomize, randomization, which basically uh, uh, amounts to flipping a coin and having people be in group A or group B. So half people get our mindfulness meditation intervention, the other half get another intervention, which we call the lifestyle education uh, intervention. So these are our two groups, the mindfulness meditation and the lifestyle education. Now, in, from uh, a lot of drug trials, you might be familiar with the real drug and the fake drug, right? This is our version of the, and again, I don't want to say real intervention and fake intervention because it's not true. This, our control group did really well too. So I'll tell you about that, but it's not uh, the similar, but the idea is that this is what we were testing and then we developed a control group right here. And so participants came to the Department of Psychology. They engaged in practices with us. So this was a four-week intervention. This was a pilot study. And they met with our facilitator once a week for about two hours. And we gave them audio CDs of practices. And we requested them to engage in these practices for between 30 to 45 minutes. Not just the mindfulness meditation group, but also the lifestyle education group. So both of the groups were doing something. So what did we find? So we did find that there was a reduction of mind wandering in our mindfulness group. And that there was actually a reduction in both groups, but much more in the mindfulness group compared to our lifestyle education group, which suggests that there's some evidence for the fact that mindfulness training can reduce mind wandering in our participants. But I think as someone who really wants to improve cognitive health, my question was, does it improve cognitive performance? Does it improve their actual attention? And the answer to that was that not for everybody, not for everybody in the mindfulness group did it improve cognitive functioning. What we did find, and this is a bit of a complicated graph, but if you just focus right here, we found that our participants who were in the mindfulness group but were really performing well, had high cognitive capacity at baseline, were the ones who benefited the most from this intervention. So, you know, mindfulness meditation is really being pitched to try and see if we, it can be used to prevent Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment. But what this, these results show is that we cannot do it in individuals who already have mild cognitive impairment. We cannot do it uh, for individuals who are already suffering from Alzheimer's disease. This is a preventative intervention. We need to engage in this when we have good working memory capacity, good baseline capacity, and that's when we can get the most benefit out of this. So the other thing that we did, which was not part of this study, was that we also looked at brain imaging scans of people who had high mindfulness. So when you have higher mindfulness, and we were basically plotted the connections between the different brain regions. And what we were able to find, and this is just a cross-sectional study, so it doesn't mean that mindfulness training improves the connections, but it shows an association is that mindfulness was associated with greater integrity of that default mode network that I, that I spoke to you about. And in older adults, that's the network that's really important for cognitive performance. In our longitudinal study that's funded by the National Institute of Health, that's what we're hoping to test, is can mindfulness training change the connections of this through a trial? You guys with me so far? Awesome, sounds good. So to conclude this part of my uh, talk, really we have some preliminary evidence that mindfulness training can benefit both mind wandering as well as attentional performance. But I am a firm believer that no one intervention is the be all or the end all. Uh, in May, we had a global brain health summit here at Ohio State where we had Deepak Chopra. For those of you who don't know him, he's a big force uh, and he's a big motivational speaker on the benefits of meditation. And, the, and he was of the opinion that yes, mindfulness meditation is the be all and the end all. And as a clinical psychologist, I was like, nope, 
multiple pathways to good cognitive health. And what this research suggests that, yes, it may be beneficial for some people, but it's not beneficial for others. And so if this is something that doesn't work for you, there's other avenues for intervention as well. So how do you evaluate when is a study a good study? What should you trust? So that leads me to the second part of my talk, which is about ingredients of a solid trial. So what my students and I did is we went back to this literature. You know, mindfulness has been on the cover of lots of magazines, lots of newspaper articles that talks about mindfulness improves attention. Do we have evidence that it actually does improve attention? So what you see in this is that we evaluated all of these studies that have been published within the mindfulness literature to say, do they meet these basic criterion? And what I want you to take away from here is the next time you read that popular media article, you get reminded of this talk and say, hey, I'm going to see if they do these, meet these criteria. And if they don't, they can't establish causality. And that's what we're saying, right? Mindfulness intervention improves x, y, and z. How can we say that? And that's what I'm going to walk you through right now. So the one idea, oh, so the reason why this is becoming important is when I asked you guys all, oh, have you guys heard of brain training, right? Brain training became really popular in the last five years. Have you guys heard about this company, Lumosity? Right? They probably are going to sue me very soon because I keep talking about them. Lumosity just was asked to pay $2 million to settle an FTC deceptive advertising charges for its brain training program. They were advertising on their website, hey, if you have a parent with Alzheimer's, have them play this game, they're going to get better. If you have a child with ADHD, have them play our games, they're going to get better. There was no evidence for that. There's absolutely no evidence for that. In fact, I remember visiting my grandmother a few years ago, and she was playing some games on the Lumosity on her iPad. And I was like, stop that. Go talk to your friends and go take a walk in the park, and it's going to be much better than playing those video games. And there are, there's a long, uh, uh, now the FTC is really coming down uh, hard on these companies for, for making these false advertisements. But as the public, it's really sometimes left upon us to evaluate a number of these studies to make sure that they can actually prove what they're claiming. So I'll identify three important metrics for you that I think are really critical in evaluating these studies. So the first one is, right, we have a bunch of people that come in, and I spoke about this briefly, is we randomize people. We flip people, we flip a coin, we don't flip people. Uh, <laughs> we flip a coin and basically divide people into two groups. What flipping does, it ensures that people are randomly divided into the two groups. If we don't do that, now imagine here the color depicts, makes sure that there's a green figure in here, blue and a gray one here. If you don't do randomization, you could end up in groups that differ on different characteristics. You could have one group just with males and one group just with females. You could have one group just with retired older adults, another group with non-retired older adults. And you could see systematic differences in your studies. So the randomization is really critical. And then you can randomize them into the two groups. The second thing, which is really important and often gets missed in studies, is having active control groups. This becomes really important when you're working with older adult population, with children, with clinical populations, right? Like I said, a lot of my participants were retired. Sometimes people get better, and not sometimes. I think a lot of times people get better just because they get out of the house. They come to Ohio State campus and drive around this crazy campus where undergraduates are walking everywhere, right? And then they interact with other people. So social support makes a big difference. Driving and having those visuospatial skills makes a big difference. Interacting with these experts, that makes a big difference. So how do we know that when people are getting better, they're getting better because of the mindfulness intervention and not because of all of these X, Y, and Z uh, reasons? So having an active control group, a number of the studies within this literature and all of the literatures, really, we're focusing on comparing your active intervention with a group that doesn't do anything. So what do we know? How can we say that our intervention is the one that's actually making the difference? 
So in all of our studies, we have an active control group. Another reason is that, believe it or not, because of these nonspecific factors like social support, driving and coming to campus, interacting with experimenters, interacting with facilitators, we show a lot of improvements in our lifestyle education group. Marked improvements on attentional controls, good improvements on emotional health. So they do make a difference, and that's why you have to compare your mindfulness or your active group with another active group. And we've done this in all of our studies. In this study, in another study that we're just, we started up, we're having people wear Fitbit and seeing how much physical activity tracking can improve their overall health. But our other group is then tracking water. So it's another active group. The third thing, this is a thing that also gets often overlooked. Do our participants, not just in our treatment group, but even in our control group, do we expect to get better or do they expect to get better? Because guess what? People get better because they think that they're going to get better, right? The power of placebos. As a clinician, I love the power of placebo. As a scientist, I'm like, I need to disentangle my mindfulness intervention with the placebo effects. So we ask people, and so you have to advertise. So if I keep talking about mindfulness meditation and I only advertise mindfulness meditation, I have older adults coming to my lab, and then I put them in what I call the lifestyle education group, they're going to be like, we're in the bad group. I'm not going to get better, no matter how much I work. So we try and design our interventions. And even our control group is a very active control group. We often talk to them about how we see all of these improvements and how we see these changes. So people have to think that they're going to get better. And in our study, we, do, we were able to ask people, did you, did you think that the intervention that you just did is going to make you better? And even though we tried to control for a lot of things, it still seems like the mindfulness group thinks that they're going to get better slightly more than the nutrition education group. This wasn't concerning because it wasn't statistically significant, but about 65% of mindfulness uh, participants and about 43% of your lifestyle education people thought that they were going to get better. So expectations are really important. And that's what we have to uh, ask in these studies is, did people expect to get better? And not just people in the active group, but people in the control group as well. So to kind of conclude this talk, what I have tried to do here is to talk about our program on mindfulness and aging. We really have preliminary evidence that there are age-related differences in cognitive functioning, brain structure, and function. And can we use the data that we have in those studies to design interventions that will help reduce age-related cognitive decline? We have preliminary support for that, but we do need further studies. And that's what we're going to be doing starting January. We have our large five-year study starting up where we're going to have about 200 people go through our interventions and use our app and see if it works for them. And then with the eventual goal of making this app available to everybody and disseminating, uh, disseminating our research findings to a worldwide audience. What I wanted to do next was, if you guys would engage me, is to lead you guys through a practice of mindfulness meditation. Are you guys up for that? OK, sounds good. So here's what we're going to do. If we can dim the lights a little bit. And I promise I will leave time for questions. Can we dim these lights, please? I think the AV people are here. I shouldn't make a joke about them mind wandering. <laughs> OK. So what I'm going to invite you to do is to just close your eyes. Keep your pens and papers and phones away. Take a deep inhalation. Roll your shoulders up, 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 feeling the stretch, the tension. Exhale and relax. Inviting you here to focus on the inhalation 
and the exhalation of your breath. Life starts with a breath and ends with a breath. So just focusing on your breathing. Now in the last 40 minutes, you've been hearing about mindfulness, the benefits of mindfulness. But in this moment, what we're going to learn about is just being right here, right now in this moment. Because this moment is really what we have to learn and develop. What is past is in the past. And what lies ahead of us, well, lies ahead of us. So to see if we can use this moment to develop a more deeper, a more enhanced relationship with ourselves. You know, this work is about a lot of things. And one of those things is developing self-awareness and personal insight learning skills to help better support us in every moment of our lives and to help support us through the various ups and downs of our lives. So how do we learn to kind of ride the waves of being human? so that we're not constantly pulled in all of these different directions. But just learning to be in this moment. So what we're going to do here is just a little internal exploration, just checking of the landscape and exploring for ourselves what is our experience in this moment? What do I even mean by that question? Your experience in this present moment. What are you aware of in this very moment? So let's just start by taking a look at ourselves with how are we sitting? How are we physically feeling right now? Are we sitting in a way that causes distress? Or are we sitting in a way that makes us feel pretty balanced, centered? There's no shift that's required. We're just noticing here. How are you physically feeling right now? Are you energetic, achy? tired, just noticing. Another thing that we might be aware of any given moment is how are we feeling emotionally? Anxious, happy, sad, excited, just noticing what shows up for us not changing anything. And we often realize that as soon as we start attending to emotions, thoughts start coming up. So what is the nature of your thoughts right now? Wondering about what we're doing. Thoughts about the past. Thoughts about the future worry thoughts, concerning thoughts, but just noticing. The idea is to open up to our experiences of the present moment without judgment, being aware of how things show up for us. 
one other phenomena that we can turn to is any sensations that you might be experiencing. <coughs> the air on your hands. Or perhaps the way your feet touch the ground. Or your back touches the chair. Just noticing. These are all sensory experiences for us. We're sitting here, opening ourselves up to life as it's happening in this present moment. One last thing I'll invite you to turn your attention to are any sounds that you may notice. Just opening up to those sounds, noticing them, noticing when a sound leads to a thought, a thought leads to thinking, but letting go and coming back. And just as you would zoom in with your camera lens, taking that camera lens and bringing it back to your breath where we started, focusing on the inhalation and the exhalation of your breath. Mind wanders off, no big deal. We pick it up, just like we would pick a puppy in training, and bring it back to your breathing, your in-breath and your out-breath. I will end this with a poem called Breath by Breath by Dana Falls. Life proceeds, breath by breath, deep, full, and easy, shallow or uneven. Breathing is the key to cultivating peace. Breath by breath, choose to stay present. It isn't success you're seeking but surrender to the flow of energy. It's not control that matters, but letting go, allowing life exactly as it is in this moment to touch and change and breathe through you. And then whenever you're ready, inviting you to open up your eyes and take in the light of this room, the, connect the connections in this room. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate the invitation to come and talk about my work, and I'm happy to take any questions. Right, we have about 10 minutes uh, for questions. Uh, <clears throat> I can't see, sorry. My <laughs> I know, the lights are in your... Yeah, lights are really bright. Okay, we'll start from you. Yes. Uh, isn't, uh, mind, isn't mind, <clears throat> mind wandering a type of experience? There's thought in mind wandering, so shouldn't you be mindfulness of mind wandering and it sounds to me like you're saying you should intervene and bring yourself back to something mm -hmm. else when you're mind wandering and it sounds somewhat contradictory to mm -hmm. me. Absolutely, that's a good question. <clears throat> Isn't mind wandering one of our experiences as well? It absolutely is and this comes from the person who really has a very active wandering mind, right? The idea with mindfulness 
really is to not judge ourselves for engaging in mind wandering, but the idea of when can we choose to engage in mind wandering versus when can we not choose to engage in mind wandering. It's being aware of mind wandering. Oftentimes, and we've seen this in fMRI studies as well, is when people are actually engaging in mind wandering, they're not aware of that. So mindfulness is about training the awareness it's about training our awareness to choose to either engage in mind wandering, and if we don't choose to engage in mind wandering, coming back to what we're doing in the present moment. So you talked about your clinical study. Are you taking um, subjects, or what are, what are the parameters that you're looking at and the age groups that you're looking at? Uh, thank you. So we are going to be starting recruitment for that study in January. It's going to go, it's, it's a five-year study, but we're going to be doing recruitment for about three years or so. We're going to basically be taking older adults between the ages of 65 to 85 years old, uh, and we're going to try and relax most of the criteria so that we can try and reach a much wider audience. Um, and the idea would be for uh, to include older adults who can go through an MRI environment. There's a mic coming for you. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. You mentioned that uh, it's best if one's going to do something like mindfulness intervention regarding uh, cognitive function to do it before uh, mild cognitive uh, impairment or dementia. Yeah. Does that mean if you need to do it when you're healthy and at your optimal, you have a window of about four years when you're 21 <laughs> to implement this? Yeah, I think it's too late for all of us, right? Yeah. Except for maybe May in the audience, I think it's too late for all of us. But this is a question that's interesting because I talk a lot to college students and they always say, okay, so I can start when I'm older, right? I don't have to do anything right now. And I'm like, nope, studies actually suggest that it's gonna benefit you. And especially all of this mind wandering that you're doing while uh, in a classroom that your parents are paying a lot of money for, you, it would be helpful if you actually did engage in mindfulness. Um, yeah. As do your studies show that the ability to engage in mindfulness declines with age? It actually increases with age. So okay. uh, that's the good news here, and that's why I think a lot of older adults tend to like these practices uh, as well, because it's, believe it or not, really hard for younger adults to engage in mindfulness, <laughs> much more than older adults. So our research and those of others suggest that this ability to be mindful is much higher as we get older. And there aren't longitudinal studies on that, so they haven't tracked, because it's a much recent area of study, so what would be ideal is that we took college students and followed them up for 70 years, and the same students, and, and did the assessments. They would love these studies, right? Why wouldn't they? Uh, but right now, when we've taken younger adults and older adults, we do see the differences. Um, I wanted to ask a question about mindfulness, really. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between what you call mindfulness and what I would call concentration. Mm -hmm. um, my training is mathematics, uh -huh. and I know by experience, if you want to have any results, you have to learn to concentrate mm -hmm. very, uh, very sharply on uh -huh. what you have. Yeah. Is that mindfulness? It's definitely a part of mindfulness, for why, sure. Why is it a part and mm -hmm. not just mindfulness? Absolutely. So the idea is that can we take that concentration that you're engaging in when you're doing this work, but also apply it to all spheres of our life, right? So it's you're concentrating not just while you're solving that mathematical problem, but you're concentrating when you're with your child, right? So when you're in that moment of being of spending time with your child, are you thinking about work or are you thinking about groceries that you have to do? Uh, one of my, uh, the Buddhist monks that I tend to follow, Thich Nhat Hanh, he really speaks to this idea about washing dishes. When we are washing dishes or engaging in tasks that we're not very, you know, I was raking leaves yesterday, and sometimes when you're doing those things, you're like, I can't wait for this to be over, right? And mindfulness is about this idea of taking that moment in its entirety. So you're raking leaves because you want to rake leaves, and you're in that moment and not thinking about the next thing that you have to do. I wonder if you could elaborate for a, for a, a bit on a correlation that you that you referred to but didn't really go into, or at least mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand that you did, 
Uh, and that is that among the group of, of seniors with whom you were working, uh, there was a high degree of correlation between more mind wandering and higher degrees of unhappiness. Uh -huh. I find this personally distressing. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, I spend a great deal of time trying to emulate my dog, um, <laughs> who manages to live in the moment all the time. Yeah. Um, and I just wondered if you'd tell us a bit about how you reached this startling conclusion. Sure. So it's not my study. It was a study that was done by Dan Gilbert at Harvard University. And what they basically did and was a study on about 800 to 1,000 people. And they gave them these um, Palm Pilots. They don't use Palm Pilots anymore. But this was a study that was done a while ago. They gave them Palm Pilots. And on a, in a given week, they basically randomly messaged them and said, are you focused on the task that you're doing, or are you engaging in mind-wandering? And then they had them fill out questionnaires on happiness and unhappiness, or, un or unhappiness, and basically found that people, it was a correlational study again, that people who were engaging in more mind-wandering were the ones who were less happy. And so this was a study, again, not done in my lab, but a study that was published and I think has been replicated as well. So that was their finding. And believe me, on a personal level, I was very distressed as well about that. So yes. Um, is there any resources here that's similar to what John Kabat-Zinn put together, the mindful-based stress relief? Is Ohio State putting anything together like that where the general public can sign up and uh, go through those programs? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things I forgot to put is if you go on my lab website, we've collected a bunch of national as well as local resources. So these are freely available podcasts and the ones that we've actually used in our lab and find them to be good, as well as books and other resources on mindfulness. So if you just Google my name and type Ruchika Prakash lab, that's the first link that shows up and there's a link on mindfulness. I also uh, think a this was last year, so I haven't checked since then, the Center for Integrative Medicine here had freely available podcasts that were developed here at Ohio State and, and taken. Uh, we haven't done anything from like this from our app because I like uh, from our studies because like I said we want to collect the evidence and then take that evidence-based science and put it in an app so it'll happen in about four or five years and I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I've met, fortunately met, Buddhist monks in my travels. Yeah. Now, they have been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. what, what have they found? Young people being mindful for long periods of time. So I'm sorry, what's the question? Young people Young. starting it early. Yeah. What, have they discovered anything? Yeah, so there was this really, and you know, it speaks to this idea of lifestyle intervention. So the question was, do young people benefit from that? So there was this study that got published in uh, the journal Science a few weeks ago. This was a study out of Germany, the Max Planck group, and they basically took young adults and had them go through, which I think is phenomenal and it's my dream study to do if only the NIH would fund it, is have them go through nine months of mindfulness intervention. So they met once a week uh, for about two, two and a half, hours and then engaged in these practices for 30 to 45 minutes, right? And so they found huge changes for the young adult group, both in terms of brain structure and function, but also their ability to empathize with others, their ability to show compassion and, and improve attention, where it's a really well-designed study. So if anyone is interested in that, I would definitely recommend, uh, recommend uh, searching, looking that study up. Have you found differences between Eastern and Western cultures? That's a good question. I feel like it's out of my area of expertise. Uh, I'm sure that there are. They, they, I, again, grew up in an Eastern culture, uh, but in a very Western town. Uh, so uh, people always ask me, oh, did you get into this work while you were growing up in India? And I feel like I should say yes because it's going to give me more credibility, but that's not true. <laughs> I really got into uh, a lot of this research towards the end of graduate school when I feel like my personal levels of stress were pretty high. We were doing a long-distance relationship, trying to find a job and finish a PhD uh, uh, dissertation, but um, I got into this when I got here personally and approaching it from a 
very secular scientific perspective, but I, I'm sure that there are differences in Eastern and Western conceptualizations of, uh, of mindfulness, uh, but that's probably a broader question than I can answer. All right, uh, we're gonna finish the question period. Uh, before we finish today's lecture, I have two announcements. Uh, the first one is that our next Science Sunday lecture is on December 3rd. It's about particle physics, and uh, I encourage everybody to pick up uh, the field guide outside of this room. Uh, we have future programs uh, in December and January and, and so on. Uh, the other uh, announcement is that uh, we have our reception upstairs in the traditions room, and if you want to talk to Dr. Uh, Prakash, she will be there. And uh, uh, last but not least, please join me to thank uh, Dr. Prakash for a wonderful lecture.